This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Today we're about three quarters of the way through the season, and if we look back at last winter's projections, I think I did a pretty decent job. I said Bryce Harper would have a great year, I said Joey Votto would have a great year, I said the Mets would make the playoffs, and the Padres probably wouldn't. Those are all looking pretty good today. But one place where I completely whiffed was the American League Central. I said the Royals had no shot to make it back, and I said Cleveland was going to be a breakout team this year. Wow, does that not look so great right now. Joining me right now to tell me what went wrong in Cleveland, MLB.com beat writer Jordan Bastion. Jordan, if you could pick one reason why Cleveland has not lived up to expectations, what would it be? Well, they put them on the uh, cover of Sports Illustrated. That's it. <laughs> that, that was it. They put them on the cover, throw out all the numbers. That's all that matters. It's the SI jinx. It's happened to this team before. No, uh, honestly, you know, it, it all comes down to the offense. Uh, the, the offense just did not live up to expectations uh, throughout the year. Brandon Moss, you know, showed the predictable slugging that we all knew was going to be there, um, but it was the, the hits and the run production in between the home runs that just went missing. Uh, Carlos Santana's slugging percentage really dropped this year. Uh, you know, Michael Bourne, you know, never lived up to what they thought he was going to be when they signed him. Nick Swisher remained on the DL. I mean, for long stretches this year, uh, David Murphy was in the cleanup spot. You know, and now obviously traded the Angels, and, and nothing against David Murphy, but when you got a guy who's platooning uh, against right-handed pitching as your cleanup hitter, I think that's just a glaring. Uh, it, it just shows kind of where this offense has been, which has been searching, you know, for some sort of life and consistency all year long. I think you need to look no further uh, than Corey Kluber as an example. Just look at that win-loss record, which I think you and I can agree we don't want to look at. But when you look at it, what it should tell you is. He's had little to no run support for much of the season, and that's why a guy who would maybe rate as a top five, top ten major league starter this season can be sitting here with a, a well below 500 record uh, and, and everyone going, what's wrong with Kluber? Well, really nothing. It's, they were averaging about two and a half runs per game for a long stretch when he was taking the mound. So, yeah, again, the finger has to be pointed at the offense. You know, they've made some strides by trading Moss, getting rid of Murphy, uh, trading Swisher and Bourne, kind of cutting some of that fat and roster inflexibility um, that they were going to have going into this next winter. You know, I think right now they're looking to survive down the rest of this uh, last couple months, take a look at some guys in some other roles, and then they will have a little more flexibility to kind of address those glaring offensive needs this winter. Yeah, I think you're totally right about the offense. And when I wrote about Kluber uh, this morning, actually, I, I don't have it in front of me. I think his his run support went from 29th overall last year to something like 80th this year, uh, down like a full run, and that's why he's not winning games. But what's interesting about that is if you look at the guys in this rotation and probably in the entire pitching staff, uh, their ERAs are higher than what you'd expect based on their peripherals. You know, and that's not a, that's not the offense's fault, obviously. What do you think has been the reason behind that? Has it been the defense? Has it been the catchers? Bad luck, you know, especially in the case of Kluber, Salazar, and, uh, and Carrasco. 
Yeah, I mean, some of it could be attributed to um, the defense early on this season. You know, when uh, Chisholm Hall, although he rated pretty well at third base this year, but um, for his career has kind of been, you know, below average. And Jose Ramirez has soared for a long stretch. And, you know, there was issues with Santana at first. I think you point a little to the defense. Obviously, as we know with ERA, you know, if a starter comes out and a you know, reliever gives up some hits, you know, that'll tack on some stuff there. So I think there's a variety of things that have played into that. But for the most part, uh, you know, the top four, uh, in that rotation, Kluber, Carlos Carrasco, Danny Salazar, uh, Trevor Bauer, you know, have been pretty solid. Bauer has gone through um, kind of a tale of two seasons here. I'd say his last dozen starts have been much worse than his his first uh, 10 or 11. You know, so obviously that's played a little bit of a role in, in some of the regression. But um, the fifth spot, fifth spot's been kind of a revolving door all year. So, you know, I think – a lot of teams would kill to have a front four like the Indians have right now, um, and there's been a variety uh, of issues that have played into uh, the ERA issue. I think one positive thing is the defense since June with Giovanni Urshela at third and Francisco Lindor at short, yeah, really short up. Even Chisholm is a right fielder. They've been giving him a look. It's kind of rated as an above-average defender out there as well. So there's been some progress defensively, um, and you've seen the – defensive runs saved kind of backing up that uh, and I think the pitchers you see in, in some cases their strikeouts to the nine ticked down a little bit over the last month and from talking to some people around the team they believe a lot of that is there's a heightened trust in the defense which if you look to a year ago it was negative 75 defensive runs saved and there wasn't a lot of trust they had to strike everybody out uh, so I, I think those are some of the things that, that you can attribute to that. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that they have more trust in the defense. And when I look at Danny Salazar, what I see is his ground ball percentage just shot up. Last year it was 34%. Now it's 44%. It looks like he's throwing a sinking two-seamer, you know, 15% of the time this year when he really didn't that much last year. He was a guy who came up with big hype, had that playoff start in 2013, back in the minors last year, option down early this year. He's kind of flown under the radar. But, you know, what kind of changes has he made really to get back where people thought he might be? Yeah, and the two-seamer you hit it on the head has kind of been the, the key to unlocking um, some of his potential this season. actually working on something about that. Uh, it's going to be run later this week on the site. Um, but he, he talked about he altered the grip a little bit with the pitch, and he's also using it differently. Uh, you know, when he was ahead in the – I'm sorry, when batters were ahead in the count um, last year, I think he went to his four-seamer almost 80% of the time, and, and a lot of time they were elevated four-seamers. So – batters were getting in situations where you know they kind of knew what was coming uh, when they would get into batter favorite counts and now he's really counteracted that this year and some of that probably comes with more trust uh, more experience or more conviction with that two-seamer that he believes when he's uh, behind in the count he can go to it but he's been going to it a lot more I think the, the use of the four-seamer in uh, batter favorite counts has gone from about 80 to 50 something percent um, off the top of my head and he's getting a lot more ground balls. And as a result, the biggest difference for him has been the amount of hits he's allowed per nine innings. It's just really dropped this year. And he's become a much more effective pitcher, as they like to say, as opposed to a thrower. And he admits, like, when he was young and he came up and he's throwing 99, 100, you know, this is a kid that maybe got a little caught up in uh, kind of the power in his arm and just trying to rack up the strikeouts. And you'd see outings where – He'd go four or five innings and strike out a dozen batters, but you know, they had to get him out of there because he was walking guys or his pitch count was up really high. And you know now 
he's been uh, taking a lot of pride in the fact that his strikeouts to nine might be ticking down or trending downward a little bit, but he's lasting longer into the game. And that's obviously, as a starter, what your ultimate goal is, is to find a way uh, to last keep the game, give the team a chance. And if you can get the strikeouts and stuff like that, that's great. Again, going back to Kluber, you know, this is a guy who can pile up strikeouts with the best of them, but he also can pitch to contact with the best of them. And, and you know, you're seeing, you know, I think he had three complete games and a four-game stretch here. So, you know, that's obviously the kind of an ideal scenario for a pitcher, and Salazar is kind of striving to become that type of arm. You mentioned Bauer, and obviously we can't have a StatCast podcast and not talk about Trevor Bauer because this is a guy who owns a TrackMan system at home. And, and for those that don't know, TrackMan is the technology that helps us measure spin rate and all this other great stuff. Uh, he's thrown, by, by our account, seven different types of pitches this year. And like you said, it's been kind of a tale of two seasons, always tinkering, always trying to think through. There's a great article on Fangraphs the other day about how he's actively trying to get more spin uh, on his pitches, and you know his curveball is up to over 2,500 RPM. Do you think that he is tinkering too much? Is he get inside his own head? Is that why he's not been able to, you know, have that real breakthrough that we expected he would? I think uh, there's something to that. Uh, I think we we actually talked to Terry Francona today about Bauer kind of following up from his rough start here in Boston, and you know he really quickly went to saying, you know, Trevor's kind of a stubborn kid, and uh, he's a kid who's made adjustments for the last couple of years, but he's come in with his own ideas about pitching, as you kind of alluded to, and, and kind of the way he likes to work. And the Indians knew that. And I think Trevor's really appreciated that balance of being allowed to pursue the things he wants to pursue while taking the feedback from the Indians and kind of working as a unit. Um, but I think when you have a, a guy with the personality of Trevor, sometimes he almost has to hit rock bottom in some cases to be convinced to, to do something that's more in line with what the team is wanting to try. Uh, I think predictability has been a big uh, issue. As you mentioned, you know, seven different pitches. Or I think I looked yesterday, and I think Brooks actually had eight different pitches, <laughs> which I was kind of laughing because I'm not sure I had, I had seen eight different pitches for a, for a pitcher before being charted. But he throws that many pitches, and yet in certain situations, it's almost like he throws the same pitch. And I think that's been something he's been fighting lately. Um, you looked at the bat that was the, the critical bat in the start in Boston against Mookie Betts. You know, he threw a curveball that he thought was strike three. Uh, the umpire ruled it was a foul tip, and it wasn't caught by the catcher. Um, and he and he came, you know, kept the bat alive. Well, it was a curveball. It was a good curveball. Well, then he stuck with the curveball, and he kept throwing it. And he ends up throwing three curveballs in a row, and the third one in the sequence is what gets sent off the green monster for the three-run double. And while isolated in itself, Trevor f- felt that was a good pitch, and even Mickey Callaway, the pitching coach, said it was a good pitch. When the batter has seen three of them in a row, even if it's a well-executed pitch, you know there's a little bit more of that predictability that comes into play, and an experienced major league hitter is going to be able to exploit that. And so I think that's one instance. I think in certain counts he's been going to his four-seam a little too much, um, and, and there's just some of those issues where, like I, like you said, if this guy throws seven or eight different pitches, hitters shouldn't be able to sit there comfortably. Um, with the idea that one specific pitch is what's coming their way in this situation. I think that's kind of what they're fighting right now. That makes a ton of sense. I'd like to turn briefly to Zach McAllister. He's not really gotten a lot of national attention this year, um, and I think that that's a little unfair because he's been a pretty good reliever. He was someone I identified about a year ago as an okay starter, throws kind of hard but not really hard, never had a ton of success, might be a candidate for the next you know, quote-unquote Wade Davis conversion. Uh, spent a couple weeks in the bullpen last September and was really great. 
And then out of camp this year, he got the last starting rotation spot, which I was very disappointed about. And then he goes out <laughs> April 10th against Detroit and gets lit up, four innings, 13 hits, five earned runs, goes immediately to the bullpen. Uh, and since then, he's been you know really incredible. He's averaging 96.5 miles an hour perceived speed. Uh, his career as a reliever, 30% strikeout rate. As a starter, 18% strikeout rate. This is his new role, right? I mean, he's never going back to the rotation. I would be stunned if he goes back to the rotation. And, you know, I honestly think uh, the situation where he started in the rotation this season may have been more, um, you know, Zach wanted to be a starter. And I think this is a case where, you know, they said, hey, we'll give you one more go. Let's see how it goes. And maybe he needed to kind of have one more rough start to kind of let him know for sure that, yeah, you know, I need to I need to go to the bullpen. It was also a situation, too, where, you know, they weren't really sure what they were doing at the back end of the rotation. You're at the beginning of the year. You've got a guy stretched out after spring training, and you can always go from being stretched out as a starter into a bullpen role. And that may have been the plan all along, because you're right. You know, he really showed that he was an effective arm in the bullpen uh, down the stretch in 2014. And he's been kind of a, as you noted, a kind of a quiet weapon down there this year. And, you know, maybe if the Indians were, were more in contention and the season had gone the way that they had hoped, maybe he would be getting a little more national attention. And, you know, we all kind of default to the Wade Davis example. And I, that might be unfair to some guys like McAllister because that's such a high ceiling to strive for. But you're right, he's a guy that the velocity's ticked up, the strikeout rate's ticked up, he can log multiple innings if need be, um, and be really effective down there as a, kind of a bridge to closer Cody Allen, you know, on the days that Shaw or some of the other guys might not be available. And yeah, I definitely think he's found a home there and I would be, I'd be stunned if he would go back just given his pitch repertoire, he's kind of a two pitch guy. And I think a lot of times, you know, as you mentioned with Bauer, he became very predictable because the batters could kind of just ignore one pitch and, and often, you know, really limit, you know, what they were looking for from McAllister. In, in a bullpen role, you can't really exploit a pitcher to the same extent that way. But briefly, uh, how impressed are you by Francisco Lindor? Your, your colleague at MLB.com, August Fagerstrom, is very fond of tweeting all kinds of Lindor stats and tidbits. <laughs> you know, I looked up StatCast this morning. He's fourth of 25 shortstops in, uh, in average top speed at over 11 miles an hour. He's eighth in average distance covered at almost 39 feet. He's already got the second-best defensive run save season by a Cleveland shortstop since Omar Vizquel 12 years ago. Uh, has he been everything you could have hoped for? Yeah, everything except for uh, there's still some uh, lapses on some routine plays, which is kind of, I guess maybe that's the, the youth in him coming out or, or, or things like that. I think Terry Francona has been quick to point out some of those lapses you know, and I think one of the reasons there is they want to make sure he's hearing that, you know, those things are noticed and as flashy as he can be on these highlight reel, just jaw-dropping plays, there's some routine stuff that, that really needs to be cleaned up. And once he has both of those things, the, the flashy uh, web gems on top of just those routine plays that now on now you're all of a sudden not even noticing them, then all of a sudden you've got like a, a gold glove elite shortstop, which I believe they already feel they have. I mean, this is I, – I, I had to do a double take when I was searching uh, defensive run save uh, the other day when I was writing about him, and he came up as number one in the American League. I mean, I, I think I hit resort on that column like three times <laughs> to make sure I wasn't doing it wrong because he's only been up for 50 games or 50-plus games, and this guy's already on, sitting on top of the American League among shortstops. Obviously, that number can fluctuate a little, but I mean, in a short amount of time, that shows you how impressive he's been. And he's only going to get better. I mean, this kid, you got to remind yourself, is only 21 years old. So when he has those moments where he doesn't really get his footwork in line and the ball sails or something, 
Uh, you got to remind yourself as a kid that has been called up at a very, very young age and is learning on the fly here. And I think what has been, uh, you know, also impressive with him is not just on the defensive side, but offensively, he kind of started off slow, and we've seen him progressively get get better, which with Terry Francona has mentioned, uh, with a lot of young players, you'll see them come up, get hot, and then all of a sudden the league figures them out, finds the weakness, exploits them, and now all of a sudden they're struggling and, and having to really adjust the big league level for the first time or maybe experience struggles for the first time when you're one of those top elite prospects. With Lindor, we've seen a steady progression uh, trending upward offensively as well, and that's been extremely encouraging. Jordan, final question for you. As you mentioned, the offense has been really the biggest problem this year. Uh, Cleveland's got Santana, Johnson, Kipnis, Brantley, and Gomes each signed for the next two years. Lindor and Rochelle obviously still under team control. Where do they focus this winter to try to fix that offense? You know, I got to think center field uh, is going to be something they're really looking at. Um, I don't see Abraham Almonte as the <laughs> solution as an everyday guy. I think uh, he would make a great fourth outfielder. They've been really impressed with him since they brought, uh, acquired him from San Diego, one of those kind of unheralded trade deadline deals. Um, so I think center field will be a, a big position of need. Uh, I think they will look at first base. I know they have Carlos Santana there still under contract, but you know, he's been kind of disappointing in terms of uh, the slugging. And, you know, I, if you open with him as your cleanup hitter next year, then I'm kind of thinking you weren't able to address the offensive needs that you need. I think he'd be great if you were able to push him to five or six because obviously he didn't really thrive as the two-hitter as all his on-base enthusiasts thought he would. Uh, so I think maybe you look at first base or, or some sort of uh, versatile player who can handle uh, some first base, DH, right field. There's still a hole there. They've been cycling some guys through since they got rid of Brandon Boss. But I think those are the main areas. We're looking at center field. We're looking at right field. We're looking at first base. You know, and they need to find a way, whether it's via trade or making, you know, a unexpected splash in free agency because this is Cleveland. So every splash in free agency is a little unexpected. Um, but I think those are the main areas on the diamond that you can upgrade unless Antonetti decides to get trade happy and, you know, go a different direction with some of the guys that you mentioned. Well, I hope they do get someone uh, interesting on offense because when I look at that rotation, I'm probably going to write the exact same article when the season ends saying Cleveland Indians are going to be my 2016 team that can't <laughs> miss. And uh, maybe I'll be one for two. Jordan Bastian, thanks so much for your time. MLB.com, Cleveland Indians beat writer. Really appreciate it. No problem. We are back on the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm Mike Petriello. Very exciting guest right now. We have John Baker, caught over 350 games in parts of seven seasons for the Marlins, Padres, and Cubs. You can follow him online at ManBearWolf, which is probably the most favorite thing I've ever said on this podcast. John, thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm doing great. And, uh, yeah, you're welcome. Absolutely. <laughs> so I uh, just this morning, you tweeted or retweeted about hexagons and pentagons. You're going to Sabre Seminar this weekend. I know you've read Christopher Hitchens, and you have a real voice on Twitter that's not, you know, a, a PR agency voice. Is it safe to say that you approach the game in a different way from most of the teammates you've ever had? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that um, anybody getting to know me, the first thing they have to know is that um, I wasn't like a star high school baseball player. Uh, you know, I, I batted seventh on my high school team, and I was always a school first kid. I gave a speech at graduation. Um, I had aspirations of becoming a lawyer and uh, getting a degree in political science from UCLA. And I had some academic scholarships that I was going to, I was choosing to use. And the only reason I ended up playing baseball was because one coach uh, who took over at Cal kind of took a flyer on me and invited me to come as a walk-on. And I, I got vision correction 
um, when I was ha- about halfway through my senior year of high school, and all of a sudden I realized I could hit. I'd practiced so much, uh, and I always loved, um, you know, watching and playing baseball. So for me, basically every day of playing baseball since um, high school has been a bonus. Um, it's all been like an extra round and a bonus time, and I've had some great experiences in places like the Cape Cod League, um, in the minor leagues, and then throughout the entire National League, you know, over kind of a quite a, quite a long career um, <laughs> looking at where I started. Um, and so, yeah, man, I've always had to approach it differently. Um, I was never as good as everybody else. I always felt that way. So I always had to try to look for an extra edge or advantage or a different way to practice or a different way to understand what was happening to me on the field. Uh, and I spent a lot of time um, analyzing it and trying to look at it from different perspectives. And all the stuff that I've read generally, the people's opinions that I value the most are the people that try to look at a problem from as many different angles as possible and understand sides that uh, may not be their own idea or opinion. And the way baseball is changing and the way that, that we're viewing baseball differently, I think there's a resistance uh, with a lot of players to new metrics um, as well as new analysis. And I think that what I try to do or what I always try to do is whatever information I could get, I could I try to figure out a way that would help me or help my team. And so I, I don't look at it through any sort of a bias lens like it's, you know, you hear, I think, in baseball circles, you hear people say, oh, the nerds are trying to do this, or all the Ivy League brains want to do that. I never looked at it like that. I always looked at it as a possible asset as long as I could figure out how to uh, analyze it and understand it myself. Now, you seem to be a naturally inquisitive person, but how much do you think that that tendency was amplified by the fact that you were a catcher, that you need to manage the game, manage the pitchers? Uh, I think I saw that you said you, you actually looked at reports of home plate umpire tendencies and, uh, you know, where their strikes were. Is that something a lot of catchers would do, or is that, you know, something specific to you? Well, I would hope so that more guys did it. You know, I think that um, I, uh, in 2007, um, I got put in front of, like, I had two people that I really learned from about catching. Uh, the first one, I would say, was Jason Kendall, uh, and as a young player in spring training when he was an everyday player in the big leagues. And then the second one is Tim Cousins. And Tim Cousins looks at every kind of catcher differently. He's currently the field coordinator for the Cubs. He used to be the catching instructor for the Marlins. So I had him in two different organizations. Uh, and he's also from the Bay Area as well, so I've spent time working out with him here. But he approached things um, or the catching position kind of from a different place and, and taught me how to be better like at 25 or 26 years old, and, and he really helped me get to the big leagues. And so I think that, yeah, playing the catching position and having to try to figure out how to get people out or I think even more importantly – um, I think, and the way that I always looked at it was how can I put my pitcher in a situation to leverage a leverage situation where we can produce weak contact uh, as being the, the goal of pitching, try to simplify it as much as that. So he kind of taught me through how he trained me to, to do the stuff physically, um, I think how to develop a scouting report and how to analyze uh, video and, and think about ways to do things, um, you know, game planning-wise. As, as being you know very important, and I think that it, yeah, it helps me look at the game a lot different than everybody else because of that position. I, you know, when you think about it physically too, when you're catching, you're behind home plate and you're looking out at the field, so you're the only one who has that view. You know, I've played first base, I've played outfield. I mean, I pitched last year, so I've seen kind of every angle on a baseball field, and you get a better understanding of uh, how good other players are. I think sensing how far guys can range or move, um, and you know, also the, the flow of the game, and you have to look at it. It's not like playing, playing first base where it's catch it, pick it, catch it if it's a pop-up, and then try to hit a home run. You know, there's a lot there's a lot more thinking involved when you're catching. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right because catching has always been the position that we've had the most difficult time trying to, you know, put metrics to. 
Uh, and one of the ways we've done that in the last couple of years is pitch framing. So over your career, you've rated more or less about average, but it, it's been interesting the reception that some catchers have had. For example, Kurt Suzuki recently came out strongly against it existing, but for example, AJ Ellis uh, is aware that he's not very good at it and he wants to improve. You know, how long had you been in the big leagues when you started to get that information and really start to look at it? I think we first started thinking about trying to trick umpires in around 2008 or 2009. And that's when I started asking questions in Florida. Like right after I got called up, I started asking questions about what did the umpires call? Because I had a feeling, you know, when you, when I played a long time in the minor leagues and I ran through, you know, I saw lots of different umpires, but I saw a lot of the same ones as I came up. And I feel like I got a sense to where they were going to call strikes. And then to a certain extent that happened in the big leagues. Like I can remember um, without seeing the data on it, I can remember we always had a massive inside corner to left-handed hitters um, when I was in Florida and Bill Hahn was behind the plate. And so there were games where we'd get guys punched out on pitches like a foot or a foot and a half inside uh, because that's where he would call strikes. And that's what kind of got me thinking about that. And I think that the pitch framing metrics are great um, in that they talk about, but, but my one issue that I have with them is the amount of variables that go around. You know, when you think about um, we have to account for bias, basically, of the umpire with who's catching, who's pitching, who's hitting in the game situation because I've definitely, you know, played games um, as members of smaller market teams without the same kind of fan support, and notice calls, uh, pitch calls especially, um, seem to go the other way in certain atmospheres and environments, and, and regardless of, of who was pitching, but more about who was catching. I can remember playing a series against the Red Sox in 2009 with Veritech catching, where we it felt like we had to, as the Marlins, throw everything right down the middle to get a strike, and the Red Sox strike zone was much bigger. Uh, so noticing, you know, understanding like the feel of the game and the temperature, I guess, of the uh, of the pressure environment on the umpires and remembering their people too, um, kind of scares me away from all of it. But I, I think as it as they're tracked over time, they become a valuable asset. Now I can start to, or what I started to do, and and Mike Borzell and I last year in Chicago, we spent a lot of time looking at the guys that rated higher on the um, framing metrics and trying to find consistencies. And then trying to apply those consistencies to our practice, and I think it's that's why I think it's great that people are analyzing these things now. Because I've always said that the the most important things about a catcher are usually what we consider the least important things, or we used to. You know, they used to always talk about a catcher's arm, like what kind of you know, what kind of arm does the catcher have? Does he have a great top time? You know, you think about this that showcase generation of players that we're bringing up, but what they don't talk about is how does he receive the ball because. Uh, receiving pitches and making it look like a strike sets up an environment of comfort for your pitcher where he feels like as long as he's close to what he's trying to execute, he can throw a strike. And, and that's your goal as a catcher is to try to turn these guys into robots that just want to repeat their delivery. And anything you can do to help and anything that you can do to avoid um, losing strikes when they actually throw them, I think is more important than getting extra strikes. Anything extra and beyond that is a bonus. But, yeah, like I said, we definitely looked at the data last year and tried to incorporate you know, the umpire's hot and cold zones along with, uh, you know, as our game plan, with our game planning and how we're going to pitch people. And then when we practice, we tried to practice like the guys that were scoring highest on these framing metrics. I mean, it, it only makes sense. I think that's why all, all this new information is such a great tool. Yeah, when we chatted briefly earlier this week, and, and you said you're excited about the new data because it'll give us real answers about things that the on-the-field players have sort of felt but couldn't really, you know, put numbers to. And when you said that, the very first thing that came to mind for me was stolen bases. And I'm sure as a catcher, it's been incredibly frustrating to say, well, your stolen base percentage is this or that. Because we've always kind of known that it's not just the catcher. You know, it's the pitcher. Did he hold the guy on? Is he quick to the plate? 
Uh, you know, what other kinds of things like that would you really look forward to being able to put some numbers to? Well, I think one of the great things that you brought up in your article about Jock Peterson, um, and this kind of permeates baseball in a strange way, is that we're always stuck in the past, I think, with because when you think about you have coaches, the coaches played in a, in a bygone era, and so they're trying to apply the things that they're learning now as well as the things that they felt when they were playing and teach them to younger hitters. And when I was watching Jock Peterson, I feel like his style of game is, is, the, is what the future of baseball is. You know, we're realizing that, uh, you know, OPS plus and slugging, high slugging and getting on base and, and doing damage is the most important thing. I talked about this extensively last year with Chris Coghlan as he was really trying to make changes in his approach to produce these numbers and how it's changing the game, uh, the way certain players are thinking about it. Um, and Jock Peterson is the kind of person where when he does go in a slump, he's going to strike out, he's going to swing a miss, uh, and he's not going to hit the ball as hard. But when you start looking at numbers, you realize that he's not striking out more and then I see that he's not hitting the ball as hard, what I start to think is that the people in his ear and knowing how people handle baseball in slumps are telling him things I think that are probably totally wrong. Like, we need to shorten up. We need to put the ball in the middle of the field. We need to, you know, look at pitch percentages and try to develop a better approach. When in reality, what you saw in the beginning of the season with Jock Peterson playing was him playing beer league softball and reacting and living in the moment and having fun. And sometimes when we overcoach the wrong things, when we simply look at his numbers and we say that he's swinging at the same amount of pitches, but it doesn't look like he's swinging as hard. He's not hitting the ball as hard or he's over-trying. You know, it's, it's, it's almost like a, it puts players in a position to realize that they either need to do a little bit less or they don't need to listen to so many voices about who they are and what they need to do. Because the coaches that are trying to help out Jock Peterson right now are likely telling him to try to be a player like Chris Coglin used to be. And Chris Coglin, on the other hand, is doing everything he can to be the type of player that Jock Peterson is. Yeah, no, uh, I, I don't know I if about, you, Sorry, I was going to say, I don't know if you, of, if you read the articles or if you're just, this is what you're thinking, but there have been articles from the LA media that specifically say that they want him to shorten his swing. Uh, so I think you're dead on with that, and I guess it really hasn't helped him out. Yeah, no, I can tell by watching it, too. You know, it's like, this guy's got a big leg kick, there's lots of, lots of movement, and he takes a big swing. Like, he needs to, he needs to remember that he's Ruben Sierra and that he's not Craig Council. <laughs> And you, you can't train people uh, at the major league level, with, and especially nowadays. And I think that you better than anyone know what pitching is becoming um, when you start looking at the advanced data about it now and how hard guys are throwing on average. I mean, look at that Mets staff, uh, the amount of movement that pitches have, how hard balls are spinning. I mean, the reason I'm not playing anymore is because the level of talent surpassed whatever I could work and become, because I work very hard at being the best baseball player I could. The level of talent has passed me by, and hitting is getting uh, harder and harder and harder to do. And I don't know that some of the guys that used to play that are coaching now necessarily understand that. Well, you mentioned you know spinning, and I think spin rate's been really, this season, one of the big things that's come out of StatCast, because we've never been able to measure that. Uh, and now we can. So, for example, I looked up curveballs this morning. Uh, the top-rated curveball pitcher as far as spin rate is Garrett Richards, who's just over 3,000 RPM. The bottom-rated is Scott Casimir, 1,500 and something RPM. It's, it's a difference of almost twice as much. So I assume that in all your time behind the plate or even next to the plate, that was something you could really tell. This pitcher's got good spin. This pitcher's got, you know, maybe lousier spin. That's not the right word, but less impressive spin. Did you ever look at that and say this is an indicator of fatigue, for example? Or what, did you, what did you think when you saw that kind of spin? Well, one of the things that I really noticed about um, ball spin, and I think that you notice more as a hitter necessarily than a catcher, is 
your ability to recognize pitches. And when you talk about the, and there's, you know, there's different, there's different ways to get people out. I think that, or to get people to swing a miss or not hit the ball hard, right? You have, you can throw a pitch that you want them to recognize that's out of the strike zone or just enough out of the strike zone for them to put it in play. I think that that's when you hear about a lower spin rate breaking ball. Uh, it's generally something that is, is going to happen. First pitch of the at-bat to throw a strike because somebody's not going to swing at it because they're looking for a fastball or in the middle account for somebody to put in play, whereas the higher spin rate pitches are generally ones I believe that are swung and missed at more because they're, they just move more and they move faster. I mean, that's how I always felt. But I think I noticed it when I was playing but didn't think about it, if that makes sense. Like, you think about somebody like Sergio Romo is a good example. And I know Fangrass recently wrote an article about his no-dot slider that he throws because of the grip that he has. And when the thing about baseball, and I think the thing that's important to consider when you think about spin rate is recognition. Um, and, you know, the goal of pitching is to upset somebody's depth perception enough so that they can't hit the ball hard, Right. And anything that you can do to uh, make that happen um, is good. Now, when people go to evaluate pitchers, and I think that evaluation is where this really plays a big role, is they can look at somebody perhaps that's getting hit, but realize that, say, this breaking ball seems to match up pretty closely to somebody like Kluber's breaking ball, but it's still getting hit. And they can take that person and say, okay, if we can tweak something in this delivery, to put this pitch in a different place or to help this guy repeat his delivery so that he can execute his pitch, we know this breaking ball and this kind of stuff is going to be a, is going to play in the big leagues. Um, basically, it's like a, a great way to, um, you know, explain what we used to always call he's got great stuff uh, with, with the statistical backing, you know, which makes sense. Like, I would love to see this kind of data on, like, uh, you know, a season's worth of somebody like Jake Arrieta because he throws some pitches that are, um, you know, very impressive to me. Some of the some of the nastiest pitches I've ever seen. Or I wish that we had this kind of data when I was catching Josh Johnson in 2008, 2009, um, to see what you know kind of numbers that that guy produced because he was one of the most difficult people to hit the ball hard off of in baseball. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And as we go through, and this is, you know, the first season of this, that's always the first thing I think is, you know, this guy is very impressive at this. I wish I could look back to last year and see if this is a change or if this is consistent or if this is going to, you know, stay up at that same level over a year, over two years. You know, obviously that's kind of a future state for us, but it's it's exciting really to be at the beginning part of this. Uh, John Baker, one yeah. last question for you. Kyle Schwarber, uh, I know you... You saw him a little bit last year when you were at the Cubs, not in the big leagues, but I think you said you saw him take batting practice after he was drafted. He is tops in exit velocity right now, uh, 96.3 miles an hour, at least among guys with 50 hits. Uh, is he the real deal? It sounded like you were very impressed with him. Yeah, so I spent a couple different times with him. Uh, I, I, I worked out with him this offseason. Um, he came out to Santa Rosa, came out to California, spent some time with him in um, Santa Rosa with Tim Cousins, the field corner of the Cubs. Uh, we worked out, me, him, and in, in, uh, Kyle Skipworth, and the first thing I well, the first time I met him was when he got drafted. and He came to Wrigley Field and took BP in our group, and I've seen this a lot, this phenomenon a lot. In fact, I did it myself when I got drafted by the A's years ago. But you sign your contract at the at the major league stadium, and you go down. They give you a big league uniform, and you take BP with the major league team before they send you to short season. And what you what I've, and I've seen a lot of these. I saw him with the Marlins. I saw him with the uh, Padres. And then I got to see it last year for my one year with the Cubs with Kyle. So Kyle came to Wrigley Field to take batting practice. And from the moment he got here, there his demeanor was not um, like a scared kid that was like most of like I was when I was there. Like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm on a major league field. 
I did a take goofy with a wooden bat. I was just playing college. It was kind of a, an excitement, but he seemed to just kind of fit in. And when he took batting practice, it didn't look like a kid we just drafted in the first round. It looked like a guy we just called up. Um, and that was the first thing that I noticed. Like, it, it stood out. His batting practice stood out to me amongst major league players and groups of, with guys like Starlin Castro and Anthony Rizzo hitting. Um, it was like another one of those guys. And so that was, that was my first impression, which was, great, which was great. And then I got a chance to spend some time with him away from the field, uh, you know, away from Wrigley and the media and Theo and Jed and all the people that were there and that kind of environment and see him work out and catch when there was nobody there, when it was just us putting some work in. And that impressed me even more. Um, it was the first time when I realized I think my career might be over was when we were taking batting practice after we did all our catching work. And he was hitting balls uh, that – uh, they were. Just, I mean, it was. It just reminded me of the superstars that I that I played with. You know, it reminded me of like a 2009 Hanley Ramirez, the way he was at the ball. A guy almost at 360 in the big leagues, uh, 342, I think, and hit everything hard. And uh, you know, seeing guys in the past like Frank Thomas and Mike Piazza take BP, and you know, you see like this guy is hitting what looked like golf shots out into the outfield. Like this, it's another level. I've seen a lot of people hit um, batting practice. Uh, I've hit batting practice with a lot of people, a lot of really good players, um, and I've seen Hall of Famers take BP. And you know, this was the ball coming off the bat was that you know elite kind of one percent difference. Like I hadn't struck me like that since I think maybe the first time I saw Mike Stanton, or excuse me, Giancarlo Stanton. Now that is, is that is another high level of everything. But this kid <laughs> was hitting, and I'm like, this kid is way better than me right now. And I've just spent seven years in the big league. <laughs> well, I hope that's more about him than about you. I mean, because that is incredibly high praise. Uh, Judd, I have to be honest. I could pick your brain for probably about four more hours, uh, but our time is up. So thanks so much for joining well, me. I'm happy to do it again anytime. I enjoy talking about this stuff. So thank you for having me on. Absolutely. John Baker, follow him at Man Bear Wolf. Track him down in Boston this weekend at Sabre Seminar and buy him a beer. This has been the MLB.com StackCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Catch you next time.